Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on musician, writer, researcher, and electronic music pioneer Don Slepian. Born into a scientific family, Don has spent nearly all of his fascinating and unique life at the intersection of technology and music. He was a tester on the early internet as a member of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, and he was a synthesizer soloist with the Honolulu Symphony. During his time in Hawaii in the 70s, and later as artist-in-residence at Bell Labs, Don created some of the earliest and most influential ambient electronic music. His albums included electronic music from Rainbow Isle, the absolute landmark trilogy of Sea of Bliss, New Dawn, and Open Spaces, and many others. Don created his improvised excursions on instruments that few would dare wrangle with today. He made highly futuristic electronic music infused with incredible soul and humanity. He continues to create to this day, and you can get his new music as well as plentiful reissues and compilations on Don's Bandcamp page and other digital music services. Longtime listeners of this podcast know I do not get starstruck. I've worked with and interviewed personal heroes and music legends. I usually do okay. But the admiration I have for this week's guest and for his work, it all left me a bit off kilter and I suspect that comes across in my part of the conversation. Not that Don contributed to my nerves in any way, a gentler guest I could not have asked for. But Don's background, his work, and his resilience really struck me. I hope I did okay and did him justice. Enjoy. Thank you for making time, by the way. This is truly a pleasure. Thank you. I was prompted to reach out to you because you were here in Seattle a few weeks ago. And yes. Um, I had wanted to go to the show, but I had to, uh, I had some parent duty with my youngest child, but my oldest son who was 17 said, well, I'll go. And he had an absolutely amazing time. And apparently he said hello to you after the show. And he, uh, <laughs> he was very excited. <laughs> yes. Yes. A lot of people came up to me after the show. There is well over 200 people there. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. It looked beautiful on the, on the recordings. It's really incredible to see the the way the music is being presented now. And I, I wonder, just as a way to, to get started, what's it like from your perspective to be out performing this music so many years later and seeing it connect the way it is? <laughs> yes, it's great. I'm I'm happy to see people. I've been, like many of us, I've been under a rock for some, at least the last two or three years. I haven't been out among people because of this pandemic. So it's, it's a wonderful, it was great to see, to actually have an audience and to play for people. And I can take music that we did 42 years ago and bring it up to date simply by playing along with it, which is what I did, both in Seattle and also at the concert in Berkeley. I had the recording Sea of Bliss 
And then I added additional parts and went back and forth between live music and the recording. I was going to ask you about that in terms of what your live performance rig was like. So it's a mixture of recording and then you improvising or adding new arrangements over it? Improvising is what I do. Yes, I'm improvising, adding new arrangements. And I'm inside the computer. I'm playing back. I'm mixing live material with recorded material. And most of the sounds, the instrument I was using was from Kurzweil. It was the Kurzweil K2600, an instrument that was popular about 20 years ago. And why a 20-year-old instrument in this day and age when the technology, I would imagine, moves rapidly and the capabilities expand rapidly? You know, there's certain instruments you gravitate towards. You know, like why would somebody play a Stradivarius violin when we have carbon fiber violins? This happened to be an instrument that I had a great affinity for. So I said, I'm going to travel with this. And with it, I brought a, a Casio keyboard, which had a very nice touch. And it was an, a very simple setup that I could put in a, a pair of suitcases. So this is, you know, nowadays traveling by, by airplane, it's, it's really challenging. You really can't bring much equipment, so I have to keep things down to a minimum. Let me dial back in time a little bit. And I, I know you've told a lot of these stories in, in many different forums, but just to, um, just to sort of get some background for our listeners. Sure. Something that was very, that I was very curious about because it's not immediately obvious is what was your experience and exposure and interests in music as a, as a younger person, even a child? Like how did music come into your life initially? Oh, I was very much, I was born an ear person, not so much mm. an eye person. So I always was fascinated by sounds. I collected sounds as a small child. And when I started building electronics when I was seven and eight, the sort of things that the circus I would like to build would always be things to make noise, you know, that make sound, that make interesting new things I've never heard before. So I, I grew up in a musical household. My father was an oboist. Um, he's a mathematician by trade, but we have music in our house. And that really made a big difference, having music in the home and the influence of one's parents. Do you subscribe at all to the belief or do you... Do you think or talk much about the idea of music being a mathematical language? Well, it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think was a Nietzsche quote, music is the pleasure the soul gets in counting. Uh, what, I, what that means really is that when we hear a consonant interval, like a perfect fifth is a two to one ratio, a fourth, a third, a second, all the intervals that we have are close to consonant. Actually, it's funny, our, our tuning system's a little bit out of tune. And your ear has to adjust to it. We're, we're just used to it. It's called the well-tempered scale. Yes, I was drawn to music. I was born with perfect pitch. I was more a science person than a music person as I grew up. Music grew to have a greater and greater role for me as I went through my teenage years and was exposed to you know, new experiences. In the era you grew up in, were you following popular music or were you always from a sort of compositional classical background? Like what was, what was your experience in those years with music? Well, when I was nine, I always loved going to the dump and bringing back old televisions and radios and taking them apart. One trip to the dump when I was nine, I got an old shortwave radio and I was able to tune in the 77 WABC. Starting in 62, I heard all the popular music, what they used to call top 40 radio. 
So I heard all of that music before the Beatles came and then all the Beatles music. I, I was exposed to all of that. But it wasn't until I was, you know, later in life, I was exposed to uh, jazz and the whole world of music of the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s leading up to the 60s. There's so much music out there now. You could just spend a lifetime listening. It's actually incredible that because I think that your story and your music benefits from that. If you don't mind me projecting that on you for a moment outside of our current era, I would be worried that an artist like you might not, you know, the audience might not find you, like you said, mm-hmm. 42 years on. And it, it seems to really be a benefit of, in the first instance, the reissue labels that went looking for music such as yours, but then the streaming services who can basically make it all available, you know, a scalable, low cost way. I wonder, have you thought about the implication of sort of the modern distribution world and how it impacts your ability to find audience? It impacts all arts, artists, whether we're musicians, dancers, poets, sculptor, you know, no matter what it is, we are now part of the digital world. So that's very true. There, there was a book called The Long Tail. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that book, I guess it was maybe 15 or 20 years ago, was about how now we're able to give infinite variety. We're not limited by the shelf, shelf space. So instead of just like four or five types of music, there's really hundreds and hundreds of different streams that you can, you can actually make your own radio stations, so, so to speak. So Sea of Bliss is on a number of playlists in the ambient, ambient electronica, all those sort of categories. There are different playlists and streams that will pick up that music, whether it's uh, the title track Sea of Bliss or Awakening or Sonic Perfume or one of my ambient works. They're played along with works by Steve Roach and you know, many other fine composers. And in other words, there's a whole field of the sort of relaxation music. I wondered also, you, since you bring up that term, there are things like relaxation music, meditation music, new age. Or, or, or spa music. Spa music, yeah. yeah. It's called spa. There's a spa channel on uh, Sirius X, XM. As an artist, do you self-identify with genre or is genre something else that other people impose on the music? Well, Genres are needed because people need to classify things. When people are looking for a certain sort of music, they want to be able to find it. And that's, you know, the best thing that we have are descriptive words. Mm. So, for instance, when you say electronica, uh, many, many people think of EDM, which stands for electronic dance music, because that's very, very popular. But there are many subgenres, such as ambient electronica, which might be this piece like Sea of Bliss, the ones we're talking about. So it's useful for the listener because they're, they're looking for a sort of music. As a composer, I compose in a wide variety of styles. Most of the music I play is a lot more, um, let's put it active. <laughs> you know, in, in other words, I'm not, I'm not playing ambient electronica today. That was 42 years ago when I made this piece. Mm. But that's okay because... As long as you can describe the music for people and gather it together, the people that like that sort of music will find it. That's actually the, the we've benefited from search engines and from people that review. I mean, certainly the internet needs many more reviewers. We'd like to see reviews the way they used to be, where there were people that would go through every genre and recommend things. Nowadays, that's uh, the playlists you find on Spotify. The popular ones are a form of recommendation. 
I do want to talk about what you're creating now, but if you don't mind, I would love if you could talk a little bit about that time sort of bridging from the late 60s into the 70s where technology, electronics, and music really came together for you in in your creative life. I guess the most broad question is, how did that come to be? How did Parallel Strands become one thing? I don't think that, I don't think any of us have the wisdom to know exactly how things come to be in this world. It seems like when something's ready, it appears in many places at once. Uh, The tools mature and it's able now to be made by billions of people. For electronic music, for instance, you don't need to spend a lot of money. There's wonderful instruments for free on the net. As long as you have a computer, if you're up at that level, there's just a world of music to be explored. You know, it's no longer um, people in university labs or that sort of thing. The 60s were a time of development. I guess the first record that I fell in love with, it was called Music for Mathematics. We had it in 1962 in my house, and I I just wore the thing flat. (laughs) This was the first record out of Bell Laboratories, and that's where my father worked. So he brought home a record that he actually had some, some part in. And this truly was music for mathematics. It was computer score programs done by uh, Max Matthews, a pioneer for computer music. So that was my first major exposure. And then later in 68, of course, was Wendy Carlos's, at that time, Walter Carlos switched on Bach, which also played a lot in her house. And I knew by the time I heard that record that that would be my life's work. I was certain of it because I was so drawn to electronic sound and so interested in it. I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. When Sea of Bliss was made, I had spent three years as artist in residence over at Bell Laboratories in Murray Hill. And at that place, I was working with the Bell Labs digital synthesizer, which is what I used to create this album, Sea of Bliss. All during the 80s and 90s, I mean, up to the present day, I've always been wrapped up with uh, programming, building electronics and music. They all blend into one for me because I build and, and develop instruments for making music with computers. Why was Max Matthews interested in applying the computer technology to the creation of digital art and music? What was, uh-huh. what was behind that? It's a well-known story, actually. Um, I think one night, and I think it was 1955 or 56, he went to a concert of new music. It was very atonal, very abstract. He didn't like it because he was a, an amateur violinist. He was looking for more tonal, more normal music than the music that was being made then. And he said to himself, well, my computer could make better music than that. And at that time, which is the mid-50s, they had the first IBM good-sized computers in his department. And it was simple to fit it with a digital-to-analog converter, a DAC, and write a program to make the first at least sounds, you know, just tones. Now, to go from tones to actual music took quite a lot of programming and development. And that's what Max did in his first program. It's called Music One. The one I worked with is called Music Five. And now you have scenes like Super Collider and C Sound, which are the two direct descendants from the work that Max Matthew did in computer science. I followed all of that, but my main interest really has been playing live. I'd like to perform live. So that that's what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm working with live live performance instruments and live techniques. Mm. 
what does that mean in practice? Are you working with sound generators and manipulate? Like, what is your performance? You know, what is it that you're doing when you're not recreating one of the other works? But you know, what's yes, yeah. Oh, what, what, for, for one, I'm 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 at home at several instruments. I'm a classical guitarist. I'm a keyboardist. I play harp. I play all the recorders. So I I have a variety of sound sources I can work with. With things like voice and recorders, there's a world of digital effects that you can use in performance that are wonderful. You've probably seen people use these tools now. They're just coming into vogue. With the other instruments, I'm using both guitars and keyboards to play a network of small computers. And that's where it gets interesting because I try to make them fit the ways I like to make music. Say, for instance, with my feet. I like mm. to conduct things with my feet, so I use my feet. I'm working on a tongue interface that will let me uh, switch my sounds by using pressure on the inside of my teeth. These are the, the hardware problems in treatment, and that's what I'm working with. So for me, it's really looking out at an audience and feeling what I feel in the room and then improvising music that feels appropriate. The pianist Keith Jarrett would do that with a piano. I'm doing that very sort of thing what Keith Jarrett did with the piano. I'm working with my electronic instrument, with my electronic keyboard to do the very sort of free improvisation in both classical and jazz styles. When you were recording some of those early works like Sea of Bliss, what's the dividing line, if there is, between what is composed and what's improvised? And and just to, to further sort of a follow-up question, if I may, is when I listen to those records, I try to I try to hear what might be multi-tracked versus played live, and it's really yes. it's really hard to dissect. And I wonder if you could if you could pull back the curtain a little bit and talk about the actual recording and performance process in the studio that you used. Certainly, the machine I worked with was known as the Alice machine, the Bell Labs Digital Synthesizer. I had a bank of three keyboards and about forty or fifty sliders. So I was able to get quite a lot done in real performance. In the studio, we had a four-track recorder. So it's really, Sea of Bliss was done in two passes. You know, in other words, I played most of it live. And then I overdubbed, oh, some piano parts, some, you know, a a few other things just to enhance it. So I'd say Sea of Bliss is maybe two-thirds or three-quarters live. And it has a one-pass of overdub. As far as what you're saying between composed and improvised, well, that's hard to say. Everyone's different and many different arts. In other words, music is not the only art where people improvise. They improvise in painting and poetry. All sorts of things lend themselves to spontaneity. It's the art form that I'm most interested in is having an idea. You have an idea of where you want to go harmonically, and then you don't predispose how you're going to get there. The challenge is not to repeat your finger habits. It's not to play things you've played before, but to truly find new ways to express things that's appropriate for the for the moment and for the instrument you're playing. And how much of that would be pushing yourself on your technique or musical abilities and how much of that would be the novelty of your instruments and the sounds you can create? Are you are those parallel paths? Uh, not really, no. It's the ear very, very quickly fatigues if you throw lots and lots of sounds at, at it. You know, in other words, if I was to, if I was to try to do a, a variety pack of like dozens of different sounds, it wouldn't be a, an enjoyable experience. 
If you listen to Sea of Bliss, for example, that's one sort of sound. The sounds all fit together. It, just like images in a, in a painting, you know, there's certain brush strokes or things are harmonious together. You don't want to, you don't want to throw everything in. So if I'm playing, if I'm doing a concert, I might have maybe 20 to 30 sounds at most, typically more like 10 that I use and reuse. That way you're not giving people too much variety. People want to have something they're familiar with. So you take in some familiar theme or something they know, and then you express it in a new way. You really have to bounce between the known and the unknown, between the pre-planned and the improvised. The key always is, since it's live performance, you're looking out at the audience and feeling what they feel as much as possible. If I'm losing them, I'll go back to something more familiar. If they really want to go, if they're, they want to meditate, I'll go into the meditative space. In other words, I, I feel that I, I'm responsive to what's out there. I'm playing and interacting with people. And I'm just using whatever musical technique I have to express what I'm feeling. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. How connected, especially in the early days, were you with other people doing work in the electronic music space, whether they were building instruments or simply manipulating the early store-bought synthesizers? Was it a community? There was a wonderful community of people back in the 70s, a number of artists that we all knew each other. It was a small enough field. So I was fortunate to interact with a lot of people. For much of the 70s, I lived in Hawaii. I lived on the island of Oahu. And then I spent time on the West Coast living in Berkeley. Finally, by the end of the 70s, I came back here, here being New Jersey, to work at Bell Labs. And I'm currently living in the Pocono Mountains, you know, up on a mountaintop. So <laughs> sort of like the taro, you know, I'm a, the recluse uh, surrounded by trees. <laughs> I value and treasure my interaction with other musicians. That's how you learn and grow. I'm doing a number of shows coming up, about one show a month in various different places, and working on a website and trying to bring myself out so that I can share myself. Now, I don't, I don't feel like I have all the time in the world. So I, there's a sense of urgency, you know, as I go into my seventies now, <laughs> you know, if I'm not going to share myself, if not now, then when? So I really, you know, I, I'm better connected on the other, in the other dimension than here on earth at this point. No more people who have passed on that, that are alive. So. It's great to be a curiosity, having lived so long, but I cannot stand still. I must continue to grow. And the way I grow is by interacting with other people, with playing with other musicians, with having wonderful collaborations. That sort of anticipated the next question I had, which had really to do with the motivation to be out on the road now and, to your point earlier, to pack up the equipment and to sort of do that thing. I'm I'm just recovering from my West Coast tour. Yes, it's you know the the musician wins the lottery and uh, they keep working till the money runs out. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, unless you're you know unless you're at a really big level, it's not a money making proposition. You know, in other words, traveling is much more expensive than uh, the music returns for it at this point, or at least where I'm at with with my musical career. So for me, I'm lucky that I can work with electronics and work with computers. And really, my household depends on me. You know, at this age, you, you realize, okay, I'm the one. The bills arrive and it's for me to pay them. 
Unfortunately, music is really very little. There's not much of a profession there. There are very few people that make their living in music. All the more power to those who do. I'm one of those people that have been fortunate to make living outside of music and then use music as my love and my avocation. Do you think it's better that way? Or would you have preferred to have been a professional touring and recording musician? Well, first of all, I'm such, a, I'm such an oddball. I'm such an outlier, so to speak, that it makes much more sense for me to make a living outside of music. Bear in mind, I'm, I'm doing concerts of improvised music in, a, in classical styles using computer music instruments. <laughs> I mean, you're not packing the stadiums? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, not likely. You know, I mean... With all due respect to Peter Frampton, I mean, he packed them back in the 70s. I'm not going to be a rock and roll person. Like so many artists, we all find our tribe. The street artists like to uh, paint the sidewalk with chalk and dance around in roller skates. They find their tribe. You find people that have the same outlook as you. Sometimes nowadays in the internet uh, world, that can be enough. I, however, am so old-fashioned, I don't want to have my living through the modem. I really want to be among people. So my greatest love is, is going out and playing, performing. I've been several times in Asia. I played in a lot of places. I've been lucky to travel a lot in the world. And I look forward to going back to it when I can. When you played with the Honolulu Symphony, was that a movement that was happening? Was it, you know, you were a synth soloist. No, it wasn't. It, it was not a movement at all. What it was is they were doing a concert series on music that's made for science fiction movies. So, you know, they had music from 2001, A Space Odyssey. They had music from Star Wars, music from Star Trek, all these different music. The musics were all done in different keys. So the way it worked is I was the transition. Say, if the symphony played a piece in the key of C and the next piece was going to be in the key of B, the maestro would cue me in. I would play for like a minute or so and I'd make the transition from the key of C to the key of B so it was harmonious when the orchestra would be cued back in and take over. So my, my solos were all of like maybe 60 or 90 seconds and they were transitional. They just served to make the pieces fit together in a better way. Uh, I had this image of of it being more of an integrated part of the orchestra. <laughs> no, no, no. You have to understand it's, it's viewed with a certain degree of horror. I've been, for many, many years, I've worked for the Musicians Union. And there was one time, I was back in the 80s, I think the late 80s, we were going to be entertained by a really first-rate group that had to cancel at the last moment. The head of our local union said, well, Don, would you come play for us? So I, I brought my collection of synthesizers and my keyboard and I start playing and people come in and say, oh my God, they held out garlic and were sort of horrified that uh, here's somebody who's playing who sounds like an orchestra, but he's not. And of course, their, their thought was, oh my God, this is going to put us out of work. Well, it put some people out of work, but the fact is <laughs> it put other people into work. How can I say you cannot hold back progress? Music continues to grow and evolve. And electronic music instruments are absolutely here to stay. It's funny. When I was reading about your background, it mentioned your work with the union. And I thought this might be one of the few people I'll speak with who is probably in both the musicians union and the electrical uh, work. <laughs> the electrical workers <laughs> union. <laughs> yes. Well, no, I, I, I led the local union here in the Poconos for about five years. But it was sad because back in the, I guess, 
oh, say in the late 70s, we had like 320 members and we had a health insurance plan. You know, we had health care. And when I left, uh, there were about 22 musicians left out of all those 300. The, the, the profession of live music just about disappeared. Of course, the, the pendulum has swung so far that I believe live music will be a curiosity and it'll come back. In what form, I cannot say. I'm, I would call myself, a, you know, I'm sort of an activistic composer. I, by that, I mean I, I'm playing in old-fashioned styles. I like Renaissance music. I like music from the 14th and 15th centuries. That would tell people I play, you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. But it's the 1660s, the 1770s, <laughs> and the 1880s. What can I say? Um, it's a little odd to be a, a classical composer in a world that's so dominated by rap and rock. Or, you know, depending if you go to, if you watch the Blues Brothers, uh, there's two types of music. So it's both country and Western. That's right. <laughs> I was thinking more about what Miles Davis said, which is, you know, there's good music and then there's everything else. Yes. But what, <laughs> you know, in that case, what do you do with somebody like Sun Ra? Yeah, I mean, Sun Ra, you have to have really big ears and open, you know, open your mind to people like him and, and Dave, Miles Davis and Bebop and, I mean, there's great music out there, but it'll really stretch you. Even serial technique and modern music. If you listen, you'll find it. But ultimately, we have to be true to what we, what we gravitate to. Isn't it interesting how the ear evolves that way? I can remember being a teenager and trying to listen to John Coltrane and just feeling like it was impenetrable. And then coming back to it a few years later after listening to other jazz and listening to Frank Sinatra and the sort of my ear learned how to listen to jazz through more mainstream. When I started listening to it, I, I kept trying to figure out, is, is this major? Is this minor? Diminished? Augmented? After a while, you, you can turn that part of your mind off and just hear every tone is tone color. Yeah. So it's like the synesthesia kicks in. You start tasting and seeing the music rather than just listening to it. You cross the senses, so to speak. As as your tastes and your palate evolve, certainly there's music that really is just appreciated by people who are ready for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not everybody's ready for the avant-garde. On the other hand, there's no excuse for me mediocre music. There's so many talented musicians out there. We should be as fussy about the music we listen to as the food we eat or anything else. You really have to be careful and guard your senses and only give yourself wonderful music to hear. What's the peril in not doing that, not following that ethos? What, what's the risk in, in mediocre music? It would be the same as uh, mediocre art or mediocre poetry or mediocre dance. You develop yourself and you develop a feeling for art and what you appreciate. Ultimately, all of these things are a matter of personal taste and your culture, your upbringing, what resonates with you. So we can't impose our notions of good and bad on people of different cultures and different places. I mean, that just, it makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. And I do understand that. I've been a member of the, of a gamelan society uh, ever since I was maybe 22. You know, I love the Indonesian music. I love the different scales and I love playing the gamelan instruments. Now that would sound dissonant or discordant to people that are not used to it. You, you have to develop a sense of beauty. 
I don't know. You know, I could, we could talk all day about different examples and different arts. Some people might respond more to watching dance. And they know the sort of dance they like. And maybe they don't like ballet because it's too stiff or formalized. Or say, if you're looking at gardens, the French garden is so perfect and the English garden is wild. Where, where do you find the sort of thing you like to see in the garden? Well, these are similar questions to what do you really like in music? Is it just something that's fashionable for you? I mean, is it like your color of your sneakers? Because for many people, the music they like is like a brand. You know, they fell into it and they never gave it much thought. But there are a lot of people that truly, truly listen. They listen deeply and they form their own opinions. And they may have eclectic tastes, but they certainly have pronounced and decided tastes. That's an interesting thread because I think of, um, you know, I'll use, I'll use my son as, as sort of a representative sample here. He very much enjoys electronic related music and ambient music. And he's sort of going back into the history of it, but his entry point was video game music. And Mm -hmm. some of it's very repetitive. Some of it's very sort of spacious and open, but I think it's an amazing entry point for a young person to, to explore you know, it unlocks a whole, a whole universe of music. Of course it does. That's just like the, our generation, or at least my generation, was uh, open to classical music by listening to Looney Tunes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it was the, Saturday, the Saturday morning cartoons opened the world of classical music, and many people never heard it anywhere else but uh, as soundtrack to the cartoons. <laughs> I can, it's so funny you say that. I'm sure you've had the experience. I could think of so many times in my young life where I thought, oh, that's the song from, <laughs> that's the Bugs yes, Bunny song. <laughs> yes, we don't, you know, we don't quote uh, Mozart by Kershaw members or anything like that. You know, <laughs> uh, what it is is where we associate a something we've heard with where we heard it or the context. Yeah. And that's what we so much need in modern life. We need context. That's why with the music I'm putting out now, I, I find it very important to give liner notes, to give what we call metadata. I like to have pictures, tell a story, give people context so they can understand what is this? Why does this piece of music exist? What's it trying to do? Or what could it do for me? Ultimately, say, well, why should I listen to this? And you've got maybe five or 10 seconds to convey to them, okay, well, this is music for walking. And this is music for paying your taxes and so on, whatever. In other words, you can think of functional music, but for some people, it doesn't need to have a function. It can just be beauty, which you appreciate. Is your current music, is it still improvised? Yes. How often are you recording music versus how frequently are you putting it out into the world? I am working to organize. I have I mean, I started recording in 1970. So this is now, you know, I have 50, 52 years of recorded works. My project over the, let's call it the next six months or so, is to start organizing some of my older works into albums and making them available through a website called Bandcamp. Bandcamp allows me to sell collections. I'm also gathering together flash drives. You know, in other words, as a physical thing, I can sell a flash drive, which has two or three hours of video, as well as lots and lots of music. So it gives a great value for people. I have several LPs, you know, records, record albums that are coming out this next year. A reissue of Sea of Bliss and another uh, ambient album called New Dawn. Mm. So the, uh, the label, this is Numeral Records out of Chicago. 
the, the archival label, they're coming out with a two LPs of mine this next year. For now, I'm just looking to develop the ideas I'm interested in to work on my instrument and become a better musician. You know, I'm a, I'm a happy person when I can be challenged that way. By way of, of sort of winding down our time together, I have to ask, my perception as a listener of your music and now reinforced by speaking with you is that there's clearly a humanity and an energy that comes through. I can't say in spite of it being electronic music, because I think that that diminishes the form, but there's a resonance and even maybe a spirituality that I hear in your music. And I wonder, am I completely off base? How do you experience that? What are you expressing through your music? And, and, and what, are you, what are you experiencing when you, when you make this music? First and foremost, I would say that the music I play solo and the music I play with my duo, Electric Diamond. Electric Diamond is uh, myself and Stuart Diamond a wonderful wind, electronic wind player. I believe in music that breathes. I don't use drum machines. I don't play with MIDI sequencers. Most all the music I play varies in loudness and dynamics. It varies in tempo. It's much more along the rhythms and sounds of acoustic music. So much of what I play does sound like traditional orchestra music. For me, gee, it's almost like coming home. I'm very familiar with these sort of forms, and I know what I want to use. I I know where I want to go. I can sometimes really feel what the music has to do, and it's just like being a channel, um, (laughs) to being like a lightning rod between heaven and earth. When any artist is in the flow, whether it's me or anyone else in any of the arts, it's a wonderful thing because the the words come off the off the writer's pen. The dancer makes these wonderful dances. I, I admire all the arts when they can improvise and come things. It may sound like it's spontaneous, but it's really your entire life has focused yourself so that you can express yourself in this way at this moment. That really, to me, is a high art and something that's not restricted to jazz, but it's available to every person. I'd like to sit with that notion. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, Don, thank you so much for making time to talk with me. I, uh, oh, you're most welcome. What an interesting conversation. You've asked the most intriguing questions. I guess you have things uh, they can spell my name and look me up or things like that. Um, yes. Actually, what's the proper way to pronounce your last name? Well, it's Russian. <laughs> Poor Russian. I know. Well, it's next door to Armenian. It sounds Armenian. It's Slepian, S-L-E-P-I-A-N. Slepian, I-A-N means son of. Oh, okay. So, and I'm actually, I was named the nickname. Don is my legal name. I'm not a Donald. So I'm Don Slepian of all things. <laughs> After all these years, I, you've grown used to it. Just like you come to terms with who you are and you feel like, well, like toast coming out of the toaster. I'm, I'm perfectly brown and buttered. Uh, here I am. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Don Slepian. Wow, what a guest. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. 
If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOn on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.